Let's stand together as we read this morning's sermon text. If you have a Bible, and I hope you do, you can turn to Exodus chapter 33. If you don't happen to have one with you, you can grab one of the chairback Bibles that should be nearby, and you'll find this morning's text on page 73. We come to what should be, I trust, our third to last study in Exodus as we come next week to chapter 34. And then for reasons you'll find out, Lord willing, in two weeks, we'll cover 35 through 40 all in one final sermon. But today we have all of chapter 33 to consider, all 23 verses. So let me get us going by reading the entirety of our text and then pray for God's blessing on our study and and then we will begin together. So here now as God speaks to us through his perfect and powerful word. The Lord said to Moses... Depart, go up from here, you and the people whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt, to the land which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, To your offspring I will give it, and I will send an angel before you, and I will drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go up among you. Lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. And when the people heard this disastrous word, they mourned, and no one put on his ornaments. For the Lord had said to Moses, Say to the people of Israel, You are a stiff-necked people. For if a single moment I should go up among you, I would consume you. So now take off your ornaments, that I may know what to do with you. Therefore the people of Israel stripped themselves of their ornaments from Mount Horeb onward. Now Moses used to take a tent and pitch it outside the camp, far off from the camp. And he called it the tent of meeting. And everyone who sought the Lord would go out to the tent of meeting, which was outside the camp. And whenever Moses went out to the tent, all the people would rise up, and each would stand at his tent door and watch Moses until he had gone into the tent. And when Moses entered the tent, the pillar of cloud would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent, and the Lord would speak with Moses. And when all the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, all the people would rise up and worship each at his tent door. Thus, the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face, as a man speaks to his friend. And Moses turned again into the tent. His assistant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, would not depart from the tent. And Moses said to the Lord, See, you say to me, Bring up this people. But you have not let me know with whom you will send me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. Now therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways, that I may know you, in order to find favor in your sight. Consider too that this nation is your people. And he said, My presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. And he said to him, If your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us, so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, This very thing that you have spoken I will do, for you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. Moses said, Please, show me your glory. And he said, I will make all of my goodness pass before you and proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But he said, you cannot see my face, 
For man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock. And I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Let's pray once again. Father, we do ask that you would fill us this day with your spirit. We give unto you the humble request of your servant Moses, that by your word and spirit this day you would show us your glory. And we pray all of it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. I think I was 11 years old when I first heard the story that some of you know called uh, The Hobbit. It was a story that I heard for the first time as my father would read a couple of chapters at night before uh, we went to bed. And uh, There's this moment in the account where the great wizard Gandalf, he decides to leave the traveling party behind because he needs to go somewhere else. And it was Gandalf's presence and power that uh, really had got them all the way to this forest in in Mirkwood. But suddenly he says he's getting ready to leave. And I remember when I first heard that uh, as a young child feeling great sympathy with what followed in the passage. And the characters in their mourning that their great leader was getting ready to leave because the book says the dwarves groaned and looked most distressed and Bilbo wept. They had begun to think that Gandalf was going to come all the way and would always be there to help them out of difficulties. They begged him not to leave. And we come to a text this morning that says God, of course, that has redeemed his people out of bondage and slavery in Egypt. It's his power, it's his presence, it's his greatness that has brought them all the way even to Mount Sinai. He says, well, I'm getting ready to leave you behind. And we want to think this morning about what a disastrous word that is when God's people get left behind. When God's presence moves on. Because if you were with us last week, we actually left the text at the end of chapter 32 with tension, unresolved. Because you might remember from chapter 32, it's this relatively infamous scene. One of the most well-known in scripture where Israel is waiting for Moses to come down from the mountain. It's been about six weeks after they made these covenant vows and swore allegiance to Yahweh. It was very much like this covenant relationship had been formed, and then out of the fire came this golden calf, and the Lord sent Moses down and said, I'm going to destroy this people. I'm going to make a new nation from you. And so we asked the question last week, is God getting ready to divorce his people? And Moses interceded, you might remember, and he said, Lord, you can't do this. It's your people. Uh, The watching world will wonder, who is this God that just brings his people out of slavery to destroy them in the wilderness? And so God says, well, I'm not going to destroy them. He relents of the judgment uh, that they deserved. And Moses, after dealing with everything down at the mountain, he says in chapter 32, verse 30, I'm getting ready to go back up, and you might remember. He says, perhaps I can make atonement for you. And so he tries to intercede a second time, but where his first intercession was successful... Moses II is actually a failure because God says, no, I'm going to wipe them all out of my book, the ones that have sinned against me. And so this covenant curse of a plague is where we left off last week. And we're trying to ask the question and even answer it this morning, is God done dealing with his people? As we left with the plague sent upon them. But what's he going to do now? Because they're not to the promised land yet. Well, what we're going to see this morning is God says, no, of course, I'm not done dealing with my people. In fact, I'm far from it. 
I'm getting ready to leave them behind. It's as though the, the train to the promised land, it's going to continue, but my reservation has been canceled. You can go there without me. And I wonder what you think about doing anything, going anywhere, without God's presence. You know, the word that they hear, it's hard to really kind of put in contemporary terms in the degree of its magnitude and stunning significance. Maybe something like, you know, if you were an army getting ready to go into battle and just before you set out for that day's march into the great cataclysmic conflict, your general says, I'm gone. Or the championship team, as they go into the championship game, just as you're leaving the locker room, says from the head coach, all right, you guys do okay, I'll see you later. Or perhaps you jump on a plane, you're meant to cross the Atlantic Ocean, you find out there's no trained pilot to get you there. In all such occasions, you might think, well, this is all essentially hopeless. This is vitally pointless. So we're meant to ask the question today is, how is it that God can dwell with this people? That you might have noticed, children, as I read the text twice in the passage, he calls them stiff-necked. How can a righteous and holy God dwell with a people who are stiff-necked? How can... A loving, compassionate God dwell with people like you who have broken his covenant and have sinned against him. So the text is going to answer that question in a very simple way. And that simple way is uh, the main point that you want to see today is that God's presence dwells with God's people only by sovereign grace. That's what you're going to see by the end of this passage. But it's going to be a while before we get to that answer because it begins with all of the tensions. So we want to see, first of all, Israel losing God's presence, and then secondly, Moses longing for God's presence. And Israel's loss of God's presence, or seeming loss of the presence, begins with a command and a promise. Notice verse 1 and 2 once again. Yahweh says to Moses, depart, go up from here, you and the people whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt. To the land which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, To your offspring I will give it, and I will send an angel before you, and will drive out your enemies from the promised land. So students, if you glance at verse 1 and 2, it might seem quite nice. God is saying, yeah, it's time to get going to the promised land. In fact, I'll I'll get you there. I'll drive out all your enemies when you get there, and you're going to live in peace. You're going to live in gladness. But as a college football analyst would be prone to say, not so fast. Because if you glance down at the passage, there are these words that strike you as altogether troubling. Because you see, of course, in verse 1, much like he did last week in chapter 32, he says, these are the people whom you have brought up out of the land of Egypt. And even more strikingly, in verse 2, he's talking about This angel that's going to come. Where in chapter 23, he talked about that angel, but he said, it's my angel. And now he says, here, it's the angel. He's again distancing himself personally from the people. He's saying, yes, I'm going to be faithful to my covenant with Abraham. That you'll get the promised land. uh, But I'm not going to go with you. And if that wasn't enough to stir them up in great concern and even, frankly, terror... It would have been the bomb that God drops in verse 3 that was enough where he says at the end, but I will not go up among you lest I consume you on the way for you are a stiff-necked people. And you could read through this in your own time in the coming weeks, the ways in which God often will speak about his people in the book of Exodus and when he refers to their sinfulness, he's prone to call them a stiff-necked people. And kids, you probably have an idea of what it means to be stiff-necked. You can picture an animal that doesn't want to go where the master wants the animal to go. A leash around the neck, and the neck is stiff 
and you, you won't follow. And that's exactly what God is saying here of his people, that their neck is stiff. They're not going to go anywhere where they ought to go. And I wonder if your neck is stiff or your neck is soft to the Lord. If you're here today and you wouldn't say that you're following the Lord Jesus Christ, the truth of Scripture is that you're a stiff-necked person. Uh, that you don't want to go anywhere that he says you must go to know life. The Bible says to be in such a place is to be a stranger to the covenant mentioned here in verse 1 and 2. is to have no hope and to be without God in the world. Uh, that you need someone who can lead you. Someone who can soften you. And I wonder if you have someone who can do that. And the text is going to tell us who that person is soon enough. But of course, if you look even deeper, what uh, the Lord is saying to the nation of Israel here is that, hey, I'll give you the external benefits of the covenant, but I'm not going to go with you. Uh, The internal, life-giving, vital relationship, that's not going to be true among us anymore. But you're going to get all the external benefits of living in the promised land. And you might recognize, perhaps, students, how many people in the world want just that. The external benefits from God without any relationship with God. Maybe even to you this morning, that sounds quite good. Yeah, you mean I'm going to get all the blessings of the covenant without actually the covenant king himself? Well, of course, Israel understands this to be a horrible, terrifying truth. Notice again, verse 4, when the people heard this disastrous word, they mourned. And no one put on his ornaments. Is it a disastrous word to you that you might be promised the benefits but not get the benefactor? A word that you would mourn over, that you might get the gifts, but not the giver. The blessings, but not the blessed one himself. And you'll see God says, hey, you need to take off your ornaments. Strip them away, and I need to figure out what I'm going to do with you. And so they take off the ornaments, which seems to be this uh, public, visible uh, manifestation of their repentance. Because it was those very ornaments, those jewels you might remember, they gave to Moses at least a portion of them as he took them. I'm sorry, gave them to Aaron and he ground them down and formed this golden calf. And so there's this pictorial display to all people that they could see that they are leaving behind the superficial things that have held them back. And now they're pursuing God's supernatural glory. They're, they're publicly repenting at this point. And every one of you in the room here today certainly has to take off some ornament that is holding you back. Something you must lay off in order to follow the Lord more fully. And you'll see, of course, in verse 7 and following, we get this interlude that many commentators don't know what to do with. Because it seems like it's talking about a tabernacle that has not yet been built, having already been built here in the middle of chapter 33. But if you scan your eyes through the first, or really just verse 7 through 11. You'll see the number of times this word is mentioned by way of of a tent. A tent is pitched outside the camp, and you'll see the phrases outside the camp mentioned far enough. And you need to know that, of course, the purpose of the Exodus, we've already heard this in the book of Exodus, was that God would dwell with his people. If you turn back to chapter 30, actually it's chapter 29, isn't it, Uh, where God says in verse 45, I will dwell among them, among the people of Israel, and will be their God. And they shall know that I am the Lord their God, who brought them out of the land of Egypt, that I might dwell among them. That's the purpose, right? That I might dwell among them. But here, what you notice, God with Moses is not dwelling here, inside the camp. He's dwelling out there, 
outside the camp. He's not dwelling here with all of God's people. He's dwelling out there with one person. As certain was God's presence belonging to Moses, so uncertain is God's presence belonging to his people. It seems like they're losing God's presence. So up steps Moses and his prayers of longing for God's presence. Look again at verse 12. Moses said to the Lord, See, you say to me, Bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and have also, you have also found favor in my sight. Verse 13, Now therefore, if I have favor in your sight, please show me your ways that I may know in order, know you in order to find favor in your sight. So Moses is about ready to go to work, isn't he? About interceding for God's people once again. And the question based on chapter 32 is, is this intercession going to be successful like his first intercession was? Or is this intercession seemingly going to fall short like his second intercession was? And if you see, if God responds to him in verse 14, it seems like he's successful. Because God says, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. But we say not so fast once again. Because the you in that verse is you personal, singular. Moses, you, I'll go with you, but not them. I'll give you rest, but not them. So how is Israel going to get? How is Israel going to keep? How is Israel going to gain God's presence? Well, of course, they need a mediator, don't they? He says in verse 15, If your presence will not go with us, do not bring us up from here. Now, what proceeds to follow is, of course, Moses' successful intercession. It's telling us that without Moses and his intercessory work, that Israel seemingly would have lost everything of eternal value, reminding us also, once again, that you too need an intercessor. Uh, you need someone who can go between you and God that you might know that treasured, cherished reality of, of his presence. And I do hope you know that such an intercessor and mediator is offered to you. The Bible says his name is Jesus Christ. God knows his name. Not just as Christ received the name that is above every name. We've seen in recent weeks in Exodus that in his work as intercessor, just as the high priest would bear the nation of Israel on his heart with these chosen stones. So does Jesus Christ bear his people on his heart as he goes to the Lord praying for his saints. God says in verse 17, you see the success, this very thing you have spoken I will do. You have found favor in my sight and I know you by name. Some of you can remember far enough back to the year 2000. The best-selling book, Christian book, of that year was a tiny little volume that overtook the bestseller lists, sold well north of 10 million different copies, which is a stunning success, frankly, for any book, let alone a Christian book. And it was a book that was titled The Prayer of Jabez. And it was a book that took this tiny little prayer from 1 Chronicles chapter 4, I believe, and said you need to essentially pray this prayer. And you can understand if you saw what the author did with that prayer, why it was so successful in millions and millions of copies. Because it was little more than a prayer about getting things from God. Here's what you need to pray in order to get everything you want from God. But what you find now in verse 18 
And so Spurgeon called the greatest request ever made by man. It's a shorter prayer. And of course, this prayer isn't about getting things from God as much as it's about getting God himself. For he simply says, please show me your glory. I suppose that many of you might be surprised. I hope you would be surprised. I trust you would be surprised if you might daily pray, no matter your situation and circumstance, Lord, please show me your glory. In the midst of this hardship, show me your glory. In the midst of this temptation, show me your glory. In the midst of this suffering, show me your glory. In the midst of this joy, show me your glory. And what God proceeds to do, of course, in answering Moses, it's largely an answer we're going to pick up next week in chapter 34. Uh, But you want to see just a couple of things from the end here of chapter 33 about what God says about knowing him. So kids, I want you to think how it is that we come to know God. Moses essentially is saying, Lord, I want to know you. Well, how do we actually know God? Number one, we know God through his word. You see what God says in verse 19, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. So it's quite interesting. Moses says, Lord, I want to see you. And God says, okay, I'll speak to you. Lord, I want to see you. No, no, just listen to my word. Reminding us, isn't it true, that even our life in the new covenant is one of living by faith, not by sight. Uh, Some of you in here today, the best thing you could do to grow in your Christian life is just situate yourself in a church with faith-filled fellowship and commitment that preaches the truth about who God is because it's by hearing that faith grows and hearing the gospel of Jesus Christ. How much of your week is occupied with hearing God's word? You come to know God through his word. Number two, you come to know God by his grace. Verse 19, of course, ends, I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. It's a verse that's actually picked up, some of you might know, in Romans chapter 9, where Paul uses it as the, the perfect proof text for the doctrine of election. God's sovereign grace in salvation, telling us that his salvation is never just a divine reaction to our goodness. Rather, it's his divine initiation by grace. That only those who know him are those who have received his grace. God's presence can only dwell with God's people by sovereign grace. And so if you just scan your eyes through the next few verses, again, we'll pick up largely these verses next week. You see that Moses is getting ready to be hid in a cleft in a rock, that he actually might hear God's name, that he might know God through his word, that he might know God by his grace, that he might experience the reality that God's presence only comes to his people through sovereign grace. Francis Schaeffer has been called one of the most influential evangelists, pastors of the mid-20th century. He was a man that was uh, relatively interesting to look at, one of those guys that seemed to just radiate wisdom with sometimes you'd find him with knickerbockers and a bald head and a long goatee and coming forth from the Swiss Alps and his community of Labrie. And he was well known for his hospitality, his generosity, frankly his fidelity to the truth. And he shaped many a generation or many a people in that generation, about what it means to follow Jesus Christ. And once he was asked, or actually he asked the question himself, didn't he? He said, what would happen to the American church if God's presence left the scene? 
And he said, you know, I don't think anything would change about the American church if God's presence left the scene. So self-reliant and self-sufficient is the evangelical church in our country. I wonder if anything would change in your home if God's presence vacated the scene. If God said he was taking his presence away from your life, what would be different? What would be different about this church if God said, Ichabod, no more will my glory dwell among this people? As we begin to close, I want you to recognize three more things about God's presence from this text. The first of which is communion is how we enjoy God's presence. By that I mean what verse 11 tells us. Skip back up to what we're told about Moses. This tent outside of the camp where God would meet with Moses. And we're told the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. God made his home with Moses there in the tent. And isn't it communion with the Lord Jesus Christ, communion with the triune God that is the ordinary way we enjoy God's presence? And kids, I want you to know that God has promised you that in Jesus Christ you can have this kind of communion with God. That by Jesus Christ, through Jesus Christ, you are being built up, we as the church, being built up into a dwelling place for God by His Spirit. That Spirit comes home to your heart. Not to this tent out there somewhere, but to the tent of your heart that He might know you, that He might love you and provide for you as you're waiting to see the King face to face. Communion is how we show God's presence. Number two, consecration is how we display God's presence as well. Look at verse 16. As Moses is continuing to intercede, he calls on what is a, a very true argument. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? Now, could it be said of this church that it's not like the other churches, for God's presence is with them. This home is not like the other homes on this block. God's presence is with them. This apartment is not like the other apartments in this building. God's presence is with them. So communion is how we enjoy God's presence. Consecration is how we display God's presence. Of course, but how does God's presence come to God's people? That's the final thing, isn't it? Christ is how we receive God's presence. Jesus Christ is how we receive God's presence. For look again at what God tells Moses after his great request of desiring to see God's glory. Verse 20 says, But you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. And then using dwelling language, the Apostle John, when he's writing his gospel, cries out in John chapter 1, the Lord Jesus Christ came, the Word became flesh, and what? Dwelt among us, but don't end there, and we have seen His glory. And guess what? Seeing that glory doesn't kill. Seeing that glory brings life. Because, of course, Jesus Christ is Emmanuel, God with us. It's through Christ that we have communion with the Father. Jesus Christ is the Holy One of Israel. It's through Christ that we are consecrated as His holy people. And it's Jesus Christ as we're so desperately waiting for that day, aren't we? When we will see Him face to face. Communion with Him for all eternity. How then can God's presence 
dwell with a sinful people. As you repent of your sins and put off your ornaments of iniquity and come to Jesus Christ, what you will know is God's power, God's Son, God's glory being shown to you. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank you for your abundant mercy and grace unto us in Jesus Christ. We do pray this week that you would show us your divine glory, that you would reveal to us your immense power, that we might know the cherished treasure that is your presence among us. So, Father, help us to walk in repentance, help us to walk in a true faithfulness before you. Even as your Son is interceding for us now, we pray that you would grow us in our devotion to him. That we might not grieve the Holy Spirit, but instead walk in his delight and power. And we do pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.